Hello, and welcome to the latest ClearBridge podcast. This is Jeff Schulze, CFA Investment Strategist at ClearBridge Investments. ClearBridge is a global equity manager with $198 billion in assets under management, committed to delivering long-term results through authentic active management. We integrate ESG considerations into our fundamental research process across all strategies. It's hard to believe that fall's arrived. Kids are finally back in the classrooms, and the football season has officially kicked off. I just traveled on my first out-of-town business trip since the onset of COVID-19 last week, and I'm glad to see a semblance of normalcy returning to the workplace. One of the key turning points that has allowed us to make progress back to our regular routines has been the development and the approval of COVID vaccines. Our two guests on the podcast today, ClearBridge Senior Healthcare Analysts Marshall Gordon and Nick Wu, have kept everyone at ClearBridge up to date on the vaccines and all the health angles of the pandemic since the global outbreak more than 18 months ago. I'm happy to welcome them back to talk about the healthcare breakthroughs occurring not only in pharmaceuticals, but also innovations in disease management, testing, and gene therapy. We'll discuss these topics in today's podcast, Healthcare Innovation, Driving New Growth Markets. Marshall, Nick, welcome back to the virtual booth. It's been a while. Thanks. Thanks, Jeff. So if you haven't been paying attention to the markets, markets are up substantially over the last year and really since the beginning of this new bull market last March. But healthcare has been lagging. Healthcare over the last year is down about 700 basis points compared to the S&P 500, the fourth worst performing sector over that time frame, only outperforming consumer discretionary utilities and energy. But the prospects for the sector may be changing. Over the last three months, it's been the third best performing sector. It's outperformed the S&P 500 by 120 basis points. And we could be embarking on a more sustained period of outperformance as we get through the political volatility over the next couple of months. This is a similar dynamic that we saw with Hillary Care back in the 1990s and Obamacare in the 2010s. Now, one of the reasons why healthcare could outperform, believe it or not, is the end of this version of the pandemic, because there is quite a bit of pent-up demand for elective surgeries and procedures as we move further away from Delta. Now, Nick, I'm going to talk to you first about Delta. You've been updating, obviously, ClearBridge about Delta and the pandemic here for the last 18 months. Are we getting closer to a peak in Delta and what are your expectations maybe for potential for boosters coming down the line? Will we have to go the route that we saw with Israel? Uh, obviously, Europe is talking about boosters. You recently had the booster approval by the FDA for Pfizer. What do you, what do you see in the space and what are your expectations? Yeah, so Jeff, I think you're right. So I do think that things are looking up in terms of where we are with COVID. In the United States, case trends do appear to have peaked and are starting to roll over. I think this is true not just in the early COVID states in the Southeast, but more broadly across the United States. Hospitalizations as well do appear to be plateauing, so that's good news as well. So hopefully we are past the worst of the Delta wave. It's important to remember, though, as we look into the future, COVID is likely not going away. It's likely to be endemic, and it's really likely to be with us for the long term. On the vaccine side, the vaccines do continue to do what they're supposed to do. Vaccine efficacy against severe infections continues to hold up well. It remains around 80% protection against severe infections. However, there does seem to be a clear waning of protection against total infections. So not just severe infections, but if you look at mild, moderate, and severe infections, 
the efficacy of the vaccines against total infections has probably dropped to around 50% after six to eight months. Despite this drop in protection against total infections, we would argue that what's really important here is a severe infections. And again, the COVID vaccines against severe infections remains very high. As you alluded to, the United States and other countries seem to be moving very quickly towards boosters. We think this makes a lot of sense in the, in the vulnerable populations, such as the immunocompromised and the elderly. And we'll have to see how the data evolve and how the regulatory landscape really evolves in this broader population. The last thing I wanted to mention is that for those of us with younger kids, we do expect that the COVID vaccines will get emergency use authorization in the 5 to 11-year-olds in October or maybe November, and then in the 2 to 5-year-olds a few months thereafter. Great, great. So obviously, we're getting close to peak Delta, and it does appear that trends are starting to move down. Maybe we can get back to normalcy, which I mentioned in my opening comments. Now, Marshall, I want to turn to you about returning to normalcy. I, I will say, being on the road for the first time in 18 months, doing a public presentation. Mm-hmm. It was great to interact with people. It was therapeutic. You know, that was a pun that was intended for this uh, podcast. I think as I've had children, my dad jokes are getting worse and worse uh, progressively. But what does returning to normalcy actually mean for healthcare, Marshall? So if you look at what's gone on in healthcare, there's been a number of impacts. The greatest impact has been really the direct care for COVID patients. And what we've seen is with each wave of COVID, there's been a period where hospitals fill up. Well, first patients get sick, then they become hospitalized, and then ICUs fill up. And it is a rolling process. And then eventually, as the case numbers come down, the hospitalizations and ICU utilization, which lag by a couple of weeks, eventually come down too. And so... What we've seen is that we've seen, at least for the Delta variant, another peak in the hospitalizations. And on a regional basis, there have been some cases where hospitals had, you know, really full ICUs. And when the ICUs get full, that means that hospitals oftentimes defer elective procedures or other procedures that they need to reserve ICU capacity for. What has been interesting in the Delta surge is that, and with each successive surge, is that hospitals have gotten better and better at managing both the COVID patients that come in during the surge, as well as continuing to keep the underlying procedure trends, if you will, more and more in line with what it would have been without COVID. And so what you're seeing is, over time, you're seeing these small dips in utilization. And we've definitely heard that, you know, over the past couple of days, I've been attending a healthcare conference or two. And what we're hearing is that the medical device manufacturers who are really the most tied to procedures are absolutely seeing a dip in some of the procedure numbers that are occurring in the, call it late July, August, and into September timeframe. But that that has been both more attenuated than it has in previous cycles. And it appears to actually starting to calm down and come back more towards normal. So I think the other thing that's been impacted throughout the pandemic is care for more chronic or less acute diseases. 
And in that, you can see that in statistics like the number of new prescriptions overall, and particularly the number of new prescriptions for things like diabetes medication, or even some cancers that are more slowly growing or less immediately endangering patients, where you've seen starts on new medications actually uh, significantly below the starts that you would have seen pre-COVID. And we would expect those to come back. And potentially, you'll see a little bit of a bolus as we work through a backlog of patients. But generally speaking, we turn towards sort of natural trend lines. Now, Marshall, you mentioned diabetes. Diabetes is a comorbidity, affects 34 million Americans, one in 10 people. 88 million adults have free diabetes, which is one out of three. I mean, this is obviously uh, something that affects a broad swath of Americans. Now, obviously, Nick, I know in the healthcare portfolio, you do have some ideas on diabetes, some innovators that you have there. What companies look interesting in that space? Yeah, so there, we really do think there's a lot of exciting innovation going on in diabetes. And this is both on the device side as well as on the therapeutic side. So as you mentioned, of diabetes is a very large market. More than 30 million people in the United States diagnosed with diabetes. 90% of them are type 2 diabetics, or what people think of as adult-onset diabetes. 10% are type 1 diabetes, or what people think of as childhood-onset diabetes. On the device side, the two areas that we're most particularly excited about are, number one, the continuous glucose monitors, or CGMs, and number two, the insulin pumps. So CGMs help measure the levels of blood glucose, whereas insulin pumps deliver insulin to help regulate the levels of blood glucose. So really, these are two types of devices that really work together or are really complementary to help patients really manage their disease. These devices are also alternatives to traditional and more manual methods. They provide quality of life benefits as well as clinical benefits. CGMs in particular eliminate painful finger sticks that would otherwise have to be done multiple times per day. Insulin pumps obviate the need for multiple daily injections of insulin. On the clinical side, in terms of clinical benefits, these devices improve blood glucose management. They help keep blood glucose in a tighter range. You don't want to go too low or else there's a risk of hypoglycemic events that could put patients in the hospital. You don't want to go too high for prolonged periods because uh, that would uh, that increases the cumulative risk of long-term adverse events. So really, these devices help keep blood glucose in a tight range to reduce long and short-term complications of diabetes. Of the companies that are involved in the seat in CGMs and pumps, the ones I think that we're most excited about are Insulet and Dexcom. So starting with Insulate, so Insulate is one of the leaders in insulin pumps. They have a very unique position in that they're the only major company that offers a, a patch pump, which is the preferred form factor for many patients. Insulate currently has about 30 to 40% share. They're expected to get approval for the next generation device by the end of this year. We think that this next gen device is really going to be a big step up in functionality in that it will be the first insulate device to be integrated with a CGM, which means that the device can take the blood glucose data directly from a CGM, run it through an algorithm, and then adjust the insulin dose without manual intervention. I think this is really going to be a big deal for patients and for the company. It'll help accelerate revenue growth that's already in a very robust 20% range. 
In terms of Dexcom, Dexcom is one of the leaders in the CGM technologies. It's considered, is widely considered to have best in class technology. They have a dominant position in the type one population and they're gaining traction very quickly in the larger type two population. Dexcom, like Insulet, will be launching a next gen product next year. We believe that this next gen product will help the company maintain its technological advantage and help drive continued adoption in both the core type one population as well as a larger and more significant type two population. Now, now Marshall, I want to turn over to you. I know you obviously see an opportunity with Big Pharma with diabetes, but also the most common comorbidity out there, which is obesity, right? If you look at adult obesity from 2000 to 2018, it's gone from 30% to 42%. You know, from what I've read, you've seen obesity measures rise throughout COVID, especially with, with children. I mean, what's the opportunities that you're seeing there? Well, I always like to say that obesity is a large problem, but joking aside, diabetes and obesity is a really significant market for pharmaceuticals. And what we see as some of the most promising area is an area of medicines called GLP-1s. And these are versions of, of a natural hormone that our bodies produce, and they help to re-regulate blood glucose for type 2 diabetics as well as potentially induce some level of satiety or reduce hunger. And that can actually result in noticeable weight loss. And so these medications have been very significant growth drivers for companies like Lilly and Novo Nordisk, where they split this market roughly 50-50. And the big drivers there are medicines called Trulicity and Ozempic. And the other thing is that what they found is because these drugs result in a very significant weight loss, particularly over time, they've looked and done studies now of these drugs as weight loss medications independent of their impact on diabetes. And what they found is that high doses of Novo's Ozempic, as well as higher doses of a drug that Lilly is working on in their pipeline that is similar to Trulicity called Terzepatide, result in weight loss that are much, much more significant than any of the historical weight loss medications that have been available. Most of those old medications have resulted in body weight loss of maybe a couple percent, maybe up to six or seven percent. And these new medications after a year of, of dosing have been 15 or, or almost even 20 percent of body weight loss. And when you look at that, wow. yeah, it's it's really stunning. And what's I think the most important thing to realize is that, you know, there are almost 300,000 people a year that get weight loss surgery. They call it bariatric surgery. And bariatric surgery at the low end is about 20% and more oftentimes 30% of total body weight weight loss. And so with these new drugs, you're actually approaching that kind of efficacy, but you're talking about a once a day or a once a week kind of shot, as opposed to a major surgery where patients are having their entire sort of gastrointestinal tract rebuilt. And so there's much less, there's, there's no morbidity, there's no mortality risk. And so I think what's important to realize is that these medications really have the opportunity to build a new market for not only just diabetes drugs, but for weight loss drugs 
that could come as an alternative to bariatric surgery. You know, that that could really present a very uh, interesting commercial opportunity as well. And, you know, there's definitely going to be some overlap with the market for diabetes. But I think that this is going to be a, a potentially significant incremental driver for the sales of these GLP-1 medications over time. The next step is really to get reimbursement. If you look historically, weight loss drugs have been considered more of a lifestyle type of drug and not always reimbursed by your typical pharmacy benefit managers or or health insurers. And now that you have this kind of really stunning efficacy, I think that that can change. And I think that there will be growing pressure as well as acceptance of reimbursement for drugs for weight loss in the GLP-1 class. And Novo had recently had its drug, Ozempic, approved under a new brand name called Wegovy. And that Wegovy has actually seen a, a number of insurers and pharmacy benefit managers move to cover it, where these types of weight loss medications have not been covered before. And so if I think you, you have the efficacy now, you're starting to see the reimbursement, and this could become a very powerful new market. From a stock perspective, the way we like to play this is Eli Lilly. They are definitely slightly behind where Novo is in terms of getting to market because their drug is still in the pipeline. It's called terzepatide. But it could actually be differentiated and, and even better for weight loss than Novo's drug. And I think what's important to realize also is that having more than one player could really actually help them develop this market. So that if there's more than one alternative, I think it, it it could actually make it an even larger market over time. And there's plenty of room for both. Now, Marshall, you, you mentioned pricing and reimbursement. Obviously, I'd say one of the first questions that comes out of investors' mouths in talking about healthcare and more specifically biopharma is the pricing headwinds that we've seen over the last couple of years. Where do you see this going? And do you see any areas of promise in biotech right now? Well, look, I think in terms of pricing in general, I think you're really going to, if there is change, I don't think it's going to be as drastic as some people fear. I think it is going to be very difficult to pass something large and potentially damaging to the industry through Congress. I think there are enough, while there is broad agreement from both parties that we need to do something about drug pricing, I do think there's also a very significant recognition by both parties that that pharmaceutical innovation is also important and something that needs to be protected. You know, look, I think one of the areas where there's both pricing power as well as real innovation has been in rare diseases and genetic medicines. I think that that's an area where, given the explosion of knowledge that we have around the biological and genetic basis for diseases, particularly those that are sort of single gene diseases, there are some real opportunities still. And I think that the market has been undervaluing a number of these. Two of the ones that we like in the rare disease space are, are Biomarin, which has drugs for both dwarfism as well as a potential gene therapy or gene replacement product for hemophilia. And I, I think that neither of those opportunities are particularly well-priced into Biomarin shares. The other one is a company called Ultragenics, 
they have a, a pipeline of a number of rare disease drugs. Again, they're very specific to a single gene disease, and they have multiple modalities. Some are gene therapies, some are, are replacement type of therapies. There are a number of different approaches that they take. And I think that there's some really interesting commercial opportunities that stand in front of that company. And they'll, I think, move their pipeline forward from where it is today and get a couple more drugs approved. Now, Nick, I'm going to move over to you really quick. Marshall mentioned our knowledge about biological and genetic basis for disease uh, continues to expand fairly aggressively. I would argue in 15 years, they're going to look back and say we're in the stone ages of healthcare. And, and the lifeboat really of healthcare is innovation, right? So what are, where areas of innovation are, are thriving right now? What gets you excited, Nick? Yeah, so we've already talked a little bit about innovation within devices, and Marshall mentioned stuff going on in biopharma that we think is particularly exciting. But another area that I wanted to mention is what's going on in life science tools and diagnostics, where we're really seeing a lot of new technologies being built that are building on top of next-generation sequencing technology or platforms that Illumina has built up over the last 15 years, really taking these Illumina uh, technologies from the original research setting and moving them into the clinical or the diagnostic setting. One of the companies that we're particularly excited about is one called Garden Health, which is a leader in something called liquid biopsy for cancer. Liquid biopsy allows clinicians to determine genetic information of a solid tumor by sequencing from a sample of blood. The initial application is in therapy selection for metastatic cancers. So if a patient is diagnosed with metastatic cancer, you can use the GARDEN360 test to identify the optimal drug therapy for the patient. That is, identify the therapy that best matches the genetic profile of the tumor. GARDEN is also applying the technology to earlier stage cancer, to early stage cancer, to monitor early stage disease, to determine whether or not to escalate or de-escalate therapy. And finally, the company is testing the utility of liquid biopsy for screening of colorectal cancer and other cancers. If these initial colorectal cancer screening data are positive at the beginning of next year, then we think it's really going to be a very important addition to the armamentarium of cancer screening. And so that's one that we really are excited about for both the near term as well as the long term. No, I think I have time for one more question here. And Marshall, I'm going to go over to you. We had a discussion about a week ago, and I'm paraphrasing here, but you basically said why healthcare is an active manager's dream. What do you mean by that? Talk to uh, our listeners a little bit about how active management can make a difference in the space. Look, what's interesting about healthcare is that you're really dealing with a lot of independent events. What happens for one healthcare company doesn't necessarily happen for another because it's really about each individual company's products and their individual prospects as they move through various stages of clinical development and commercialization. And most of the time, it's not about a broad market. There's not such thing as the, quote, market for drugs. There's a market for drugs for a specific rare disease. There's a market for drugs for multiple sclerosis. There's a market for drugs for all sorts of different indications or as we call them, or different diseases. And so each company is really pretty specific. And what you see is that when you look at the stock returns in healthcare, it's really the broadest range 
of returns in any sector, meaning that there are some stocks that do really well and there are some stocks that do very poorly. And it's really, it's really not correlated with each other. It's really kind of all over the place. And so if you have the ability with the resources and knowledge to pick which are going to be the winners versus which are not, there really is an opportunity to pick and to generate active management returns, meaning returns better than the average stock in healthcare. Because there really is no average stock in healthcare. There are winners and losers. And so for an active manager like us, you know, our team, there's two of us that have been covering healthcare for, well, actually at ClearBridge, almost 25 years in total together. A long time, a long time. A long time. And, you know, we've seen what's likely to be successful and we've seen what's likely not to be successful. And we can apply that. And we have the access to the companies as well as, you know, the experts to fill in gaps in knowledge that we may or may not have to be able to really assess these opportunities one by one and really pick the best for our clients. And I think it really does make a difference in terms of weeding out the likely failures as well as emphasizing in portfolios those companies that are more likely to be successful. And from my vantage point, from a macro vantage point, I think healthcare is pretty well positioned for this stage of the cycle. Transitioning from the early stage to the mid late cycle, it's been a really good play because it has two of the best characteristics you want at this point. It's a defensive play, but it does have growth characteristics. This isn't utilities. This isn't consumer staples. And if you look at healthcare after a difficult number of years, it's actually trading above its 200 day moving average for 358 consecutive trading days. If you look at the other long streaks that we had, it was from 94 to 98, over a thousand trading days from 2011 to 2015, 900 trading days. Certainly could be embarking on one of these longer trends, especially as we clear the political uncertainty over the next couple of months. But the other reason why I'm really excited, relative valuations are really attractive. Healthcare has never been cheaper relative to the market than it is today. Over the last 15 years, if you look at the forward PE or next 12 months PE, healthcare is traded at a discount of one turn or one multiple. Today, that's closer to four multiples. So obviously, uh, this is a sector that may be going from dog to darling in the last three months is any indication prospects for the sector may continue to brighten as we move into 2022. Well, we've gone about 30 minutes here, and that's all the time that we have for the podcast Nick Marshall, thank you so much for jumping on the line here today and sharing your perspective. I know I personally have taken away a lot and taken away some really good nuggets. So thank you so much for the time. Well, we're happy to do it. And we look Thanks forward for to our us. next conversation. Hopefully it, it can be in person. <laughs> that would be nice. And uh, thank you all for listening. We appreciate you that you took the time out of your busy days to join us. We hope you found this information valuable and we wish you a happy and healthy return to normalcy this September. Uh, we hope you'll continue to join us through the rest of 2021. And as always, we welcome any questions, comments, and suggestions, which you can email us at podcast at clearbridge.com. Take care. Please note the following. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. The opinions and views expressed in today's podcast are of the individual speakers as of September 13th, 2021 and may differ from other managers or the firm as a whole, 
and are not intended to be a forecast of future events, a guarantee of future results, or investment advice. Any statistics reference have been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but the accuracy and completeness of this information cannot be guaranteed. Neither ClearBridge Investments nor its information providers are responsible for any damages or losses arising from any use of this information.